0: All right, if you can turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're still there. We have one more week after this in Philippians 1. We're reading uh, from 18b, which is the... Usually it's a different paragraph. Yes, and I will rejoice... For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between these two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, according to the riches of your glory... Grant that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inmost being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, that we may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Accomplish this through the reading And the preaching of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Glory. It's not a topic we talk about a whole lot. It's not a word that we use a whole lot. And yet, people are caught up in the pursuit of glory, sometimes whether they realize it or not. It's not a question of whether or not people will pursue glory, but it's a question of where they will pursue glory, And why they will pursue glory. Will it last? I don't know. Depends, of course, on where they're looking for it. I'm reminded of a Seinfeld episode. George found glory. For a period of time, George had the high score on the Frogger game. (laughs) This was sort of one of the things that the, the accomplishments in his life For a man who had very few accomplishments, apparently, Frogger was the apex of his experience, being able to claim that he had that. And it drove him, when he discovered that the Frogger game was going to be sold off, that he had to have it. And so, in that usual Seinfeldian sort of world, George has to get the Frogger game across the street. And it is there that his Frogger skills come come in handy as he maneuvers this game through the traffic, the multi-lane traffic. But of course, at the last second, much like the game, the game was destroyed by a truck. Fleeting glory. That's why I tell you that story. To be George and to think of this is your one accomplishment in life, and now it has been crushed. Glory. Gone. The pursuit of glory is tied with the gospel. There is, in fact, a kind of glory that comes from the gospel that we are intended to pursue. And as we, as I think about this passage, it's easy for us to move off on different tangents. This is often a text that is used for funerals, for instance. But most of the words that I read as I read this text are about glory, Words like honor, ashamed—the opposite of glory—being ashamed, uh, boasting is another kind of. Those are all words about glory, and this text is really about glory. That everything kind of ties in with this concept of glory, and for Paul, of course, it is a gospel form of glory—not a—not a glory that Paul gains for himself, but it is a glory that is given to Paul that is given to us, that is the one that we should seek. And so gospel glory seeks Christ's glory in and through us. That's the idea I want us to ponder this morning as we look and work with this text. And so the first part of what I want us to think about is that gospel glory prays for the support of the Spirit. Paul, in the first part of uh, verse 18, was rejoicing in the fact that the gospel was advancing despite the opposition to the gospel. Despite the fact that Paul himself was in jail, he was witnessing the gospel going forth and making progress. And so there was this past and present rejoicing on the behalf of Paul. But here at the second part of verse 18, he notes that there's a future anticipated rejoicing. I will rejoice. Paul says, oh, what is he going to rejoice about? He's going to rejoice in God's glory. That's what he's going to rejoice in. As I pondered that this morning, I said to myself, he must not be going to General Assembly. (laughs) For it almost feels like prison, but one without hope they should perhaps put abandoned hope, all ye who enter here, under the gates of the convention center. Because that's the mo-, that's the, the, the feeling I get from many of my fellow presbyters as they prepare to go. Gloom and doom about the future of our denomination, how it's all going to pieces. And it's just like, wow. They need to listen to Paul. They need to be reminded of Paul's perspective on the advancement of the Gospel. So they can go to G.A. going, I will rejoice in what God is doing. Because God is doing more than I can see, more than I can imagine, more than I can recognize. Though Paul is in prison when he writes this, He expects to not at all be ashamed. Now, this makes no sense. Because Paul is in prison. You're not supposed to be excited about being in prison. Being in prison is not a cause for pride, unless you live in a very strange subculture of the world, like a gang. It should not be a a matter of, of glorying, And Paul is thinking about his future and he's saying that I know in my future I will not at all be ashamed. There will not be the the absence of glory that is there. Paul is believing these gospel promises that he finds in the scriptures. That is why Paul says, I know I will not at all be ashamed perhaps have been praying in in prison things like psalm 25 oh my god in you i trust let me not be put to shame let not my enemies exalt over me indeed none who wait for you shall be put to shame they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous And so Paul knows that there will be shame for some people, but it's not for those who wait upon the Lord. It's not for those who put their trust in the Lord. While they may experience shame in the present, ultimately, they are not going to experience shame, but rather glory. And so Paul is sustained by psalms like Psalm 25. It's similar to what he wrote in Romans 10. For the Scripture says, "...everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame." or disappointment is another way of translating that the idea here is that paul will not be abandoned by the savior who suffered for him in fact paul expects deliverance we see in second timothy the passage that mike read that paul had already experienced deliverance other people had abandoned him but he says jesus stood with me when he made his defense. And he likens it to being delivered from the mouths of lions. And one can only think that he had Daniel 6 in mind when he was writing that. Daniel, who for the cause of Christ, so to speak, the Christ he anticipated, the Christ that had been promised already, had gone to the lion's den. And there God shut the mouths of the lions that would soon be opened upon those who placed them there. And so God delivered Daniel and Paul expected God to deliver him. You see, this idea of disappointment or shame is is really the opposite of glory. And it often comes from, from seeking the wrong glory. See, those people who were Envious of Daniel who trapped him so he ended up in the in the lion's den. Talk about a hostile work environment, right? That's Daniel. He lived in it. And so he was set up to fail. They were trying to bring shame upon him. And they're the ones who got shame because they were the ones who were eaten by the lions as God turned the tables on them. Do you want to understand part of what it's like? Just think of Hillary Clinton for a moment. To think you are on the brink of becoming the first woman to be President of the United States. Every poll you read says you're going to win. You have an, an extravagant celebration planned with all sorts of uh, metaphor there because of the glass ceiling and everything else. You're ready for glory. And then you can't even leave your hotel room because you have, you have experienced disappointment and shame of such a profound and public way that you almost can't even say thank you to the people who worked hard to get you elected. That's that's what happens when we place our hopes for glory in the wrong place, when we're looking for glory in the the wrong way. It's far more severe than merely having your Frogger game run over by a truck in the street. But this idea of deliverance that Paul brings up, he could be referring to his deliverance from prison in Philippi, or rather to Philippi, from prison in Rome to Philippi. Or he could be, as some think, talking about his ultimate vindication at the end, should he not be delivered from this prison in Rome. And there's a fair amount of debate as to which is going on, and I'm not going to talk at length about this. But I want to point out this, that within the text, he's tying his deliverance specifically to your prayers, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And when I read that, I believe Paul is talking about his earthly deliverance from that prison in Rome. He thinks he's getting out. Why does he think he's getting out? Because those people back in Philippi, among others, are praying for him. They're interceding and asking God for his deliverance. They're not concerned about Paul's ultimate vindication before the Bema seat. They're concerned about Paul being freed from prison in Rome. So that's what leads me to believe that that's that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about his deliverance, from being freed from that Roman prison. Paul needed their prayers to address His particular need. Just as Paul was praying for them, he expected or desired them to pray for him. Okay, Paul is not... We tend to put the apostles on this great big pedestal, of course. Paul was a man in need of prayer, just like you and I are people in need of prayer. And so he asks in this way for their prayers. What he lacked... Jesus would provide, but he would provide it in answer to these prayers. So we see the giftedness or the graciousness of gospel glory. Uh, The supply that comes is a gift that comes from Jesus. It's not something that is earned, but it is given in response to prayer and petition. Prayers bring the help or supply of the Spirit, in particular, Paul mentions here. The supply of the Spirit that brings what is lacking. And so, Jesus is sending the Spirit, the supply of the Spirit, to Paul in response to the Philippians' prayers. Do you see how important the prayers of the Philippians are in light of that? God's use of means. We've talked about this before. Paul is addressing this again. He does not expect to be delivered apart from the prayers of this people. It's now June. We live in Tucson. I'm sure many of you have experienced the increase in temperatures. Okay. You have a lack of cool air. You want your home to be cooler. What do you do? You sort of make a petition by going to your thermostat. This is what I set it at. This is what I want it to be. But it doesn't just magically happen, does it? Your air conditioning unit has to be working has to produce cold air but that's not sufficient in of itself because the cold air has to get from point A the unit to point B your bedroom so you can sleep well at night and so it requires ductwork to try, to bring that cold air from the unit to your room the holy spirit is the one that brings the blessings of god from the throne where Jesus sits to his people in the prisons and the bedrooms and the workplaces where they live and struggle in response to the prayers of God's people. Paul, unlike many cynical people, thought that uh, or believed that thoughts and prayers really mattered precisely because those prayers connect people to the supply of the Holy Spirit. James also believed in this. He talks about it in James 5. when He talks about the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. It was by prayer that it didn't rain for three and a half years in Israel because Elijah prayed it wouldn't rain. And then at the end of that time, when God told them it was time, it didn't just rain. Elijah prayed that it would rain. And it did. The prayer of righteous people are powerful and effective. And we need to remember that as we go before God in prayer for other people. So we see that in Christ, in our union with Christ, we are still dependent upon one another and we're still dependent upon the Holy Spirit in the middle of our difficulties. Like this was very clear in what's been going on with Trudy lately. I should have asked you about this yesterday when I went to see you Trudy, but yeah, it's okay. Right? If we had just prayed for Trudy, God may have supplied her lack. But God also used the people in this room, many of the people in this room, to supply that lack. He gave them the Holy Spirit so that they were able to do things for Trudy that Trudy couldn't do for herself. And so, this was a great week in a sense, and partially, I think, because Sunday night, We prayed. We prayed for Trudy, and we prayed that she would be able to find a place where she could live, and then a place that we didn't even know about. We didn't. God did. Suddenly we know about. And Trudy's able to move in right away. That's an illustration of how God supplies through the Spirit when His people pray. So let us be encouraged to pray. Paul understood that his deliverance as... Not Paul being honored, but as Christ honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul's not too caught up in the which way Christ will be honored, but the fact that Christ will be honored. Sinclair Ferguson notes that whenever it becomes clear that we count Christ greater than ourselves, he is honored. And the fact that Paul is in prison indicates that to Paul, Christ mattered more than Paul did, precisely because he's in prison for the gospel. He's not in prison because he stole. He's not in prison because he tried to gain political power in a coup. He's in prison because he preached about Christ, him crucified, resurrected, and seated at the right hand of the Father. So gospel glory seeks Christ's glory, not our own, in the midst of our circumstances, whatever our circumstances are. And so we seek gospel glory by asking Jesus to supply the Spirit in difficult circumstances. Second thing, as as we think about this text, and as we think about gospel glory, is that it gets Jesus, whether we, we get Jesus, whether we live or die. It's part of the gospel glory. This brings us to that famous text, to live Christ, to die gain. The verbs are supplied because they're understood. In other words, Jesus gets glory. And much of that middle section is really an explanation of what Paul means by this rather short phrase. This exclamation, to live Christ, to die gained. What does he mean by that? He says, if I am to live, that means fruitful labor to me. Christ is at work through me, Paul is thinking, so that there is fruitful labor, so that he can say, to live Christ. But life means fruitful labor. Paul's specific about this. He's not going to take his life for his, or use his life rather, for his hobbies. Or to pursue his interests. His interest is Christ and the gospel. He's thinking about fruitful gospel labor. And so, this, again, this idea of our, our union with Christ, because we're united to Jesus, our life on earth is intended to display his life his ministry, his glory. That can be difficult for us to think through at times, but this captivated Paul. This is not the only place he's talked about it. We see it in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Very similar to what we see here in Philippians. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The fact that Christ loved him and gave himself for Paul is the driving force in what Paul does. He's so amazed and captivated by this amazing love of Christ for him, the sinner, that now he's compelled to live his life not for himself, but for Christ who suffered for him. Something he would say in Second Corinthians 5. Similar idea in First Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do your math. Do your homework. Do your work at work. Do your cooking. Do your cleaning. Do your washing up. All to the glory of God. Now, we have this other sentence. Paul's desire. He says that my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Here's the other side of the coin of that that very short phrase. The die, gain portion of this. Paul seems to have a preference because something is far better. We'll explain this in a moment. In that, united to Christ, our death means that we are present with Christ in a better way than we are present with Christ now. Now we have sort of the mediated presence of Christ by the Holy Spirit, but then we will have no mediated presence of Christ. In a way that we cannot fathom or imagine, we will see Him as He is. And we will become as he is. And so for Paul, that was greater. (laughs) That was, that was a better thing. And so Paul says, yet I am hard pressed. I'm squeezed. He's unable to choose between what are two very God glorifying options as he thinks about his future. As he sits in prison. This, this idea of being hard pressed or squeezed is, uh, it's often used, this word is often used, you know, when you're bringing cattle and you're getting them to go through a gate, go through a chute. They're hard pressed. You push in from the back so that they're going only in one way and they're kind of making their way in single file from this great big clump of livestock. That's kind of how Paul felt. It's unavoidable. He's moving in a direction that he, the ultimately he's not in control of. He's hard pressed. Now when we hear this about his desire being greater, about this idea of being hard pressed, we, we tend to think of this as um, well, we tend to not think of it as a difficult decision for him. But we tend to, I think, approach this, I think, in two um, different ways that are, I believe, wrong. But let's get there. Sometimes and we can see Paul, right, in this situation, um, as world-weary. Paul, the apostle, is sort of, ready to give up, having run the race, and he just wants to get home. I'm reminded of a, an episode that happened last year during the Red Sox season. Uh, Dustin Pedroia, who's known for his tenacity on the baseball field, his love of the game, was uh, caught up in a controversy in which he had been injured earlier in the season. And then, of course, baseball being baseball, there's payback. And there was a, that was the controversy because it was goofed. And so here at the end of an extra inning game, he's being asked about that controversy again. To which he, the normally upbeat Pedroia goes, can I go home now? That's kind of how I, at, at times, wrongly understand Paul. Can I go home now? Because I feel that way sometimes. John Newton notes, "It is happy for us if we had suffered, if we have suffered enough, to make us desire a better country." So, one aspect of our suffering is that it does produce in us a longing for the better country, a longing to be more fully present with Jesus than we currently are. But I'm not sure that's what Paul's getting at here. There's another wrong way of thinking about this (coughs) choice that he has. There are many people who fear death. And as a result of that, they seek personal glory, in a sense, to avoid the coming of death. They can have improvements done with surgery, cosmetic improvements, mind you. Okay, uh, People who suddenly feel the compulsive need to buy sports cars in a midlife crisis. Um, if you listen to the radio at all these days, it seems like you're inundated with um, commercials for male clinics trying to uh, get glory, Okay. We were watching The Crown the other day, and it's it's the episode uh, Mrs. Jackie Kennedy. And it's interesting because it starts off with Queen Elizabeth, okay, Queen Glory, right? You think? Well, she takes a look at herself in the mirror after working out in the uh, with the animals, and she sees a middle-aged woman. She does not see glory. She sees. Disappointment. She's not sure what to do about this. Because when she goes home, what she sees on the TV is Jackie Kennedy, the darling of the world, having gone to Paris, and everyone is bowing before her, and probably in her back of Elizabeth's mind is, they've stopped bowing toward me, and they've begun to bow to Jackie. She wants a return to glory. And so you have her picking out this beautiful blue dress that she thinks can somehow restore her glory. And she meets Jackie Kennedy, and everyone is impressed with Jackie Kennedy. Queen Elizabeth is impressed with Jackie Kennedy. Feels small. But is Jack Kennedy impressed with Jackie Kennedy? King Philip says to President Kennedy, you're the luckiest man in the world. He says, I know. And yet moments later, there he is seeking his own personal glory and pursuing women who aren't his wife. People are caught up in the quest of glory. Glory. And none of these things can provide it. They're all trying to put off death and the inevitable. Why do I say death? Because of places like Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same thing that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you understand what the the author of Hebrews is getting at there? Is that because people are guilty of sin, they live in a fear of death. And because of that fear, they experience a lifelong slavery to the wrong pursuit of glory. They run from death at every opportunity. That fear of death is used to control and to manipulate them into into greater and greater sin through our enemy, the evil one. He has that power of death. But Jesus has come. He has taken flesh and blood. This Jesus has died, come under the power of death, so that he might destroy the enemy who had that power. So there we see the heart of the gospel and that Jesus takes death, so that we don't need to fear death anymore. Most of us don't think of these things until we go to the hospital and we see turning bear. The fear of death then becomes a very present sort of thing. We live in this fear until we're freed from G- by Jesus. What Paul is getting at when he speaks of, of to live gain, sorry, to live Christ, die gain, is he's getting at the idea that both of these options are good. It's good to stay alive. It's good to go and be with Jesus. Both of these things are undeserved favor that are received through faith in Jesus Christ. Because we're united to Christ, we will share in His glory upon His return, which Peter would talk about at length in First Peter chapter five. It's not a glory that we earn, it's not a glory we stake out for ourselves, it's not a glory that's concerned with our achievements and accomplishments. You understand this when you go to places like GA and everyone asks you how church is going. It's the measuring stick. Of how fruitful your life supposedly is and how blessed by God you supposedly are. Those are difficult things for some guys. For some guys, that's glory. But for other guys, it's a sense of shame, disappointment, humiliation. But united to Christ, that's irrelevant. That doesn't matter anymore. Because what really matters is the glory that Jesus gives us, not the glory that we somehow push and shove to accomplish for ourselves. And so, Paul reframes this, To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul's not thinking about what he wants. Paul is thinking about what the Philippians need. Paul puts aside his personal preference, that which is greater, that for the desire, for the gospel good of the people he loved, the Philippians. And so there is this sort of question, what does our life reveal? Where is our pursuit of glory taking us? Is it taking us to the cross of Christ, or is it taking us to the depths of hell? Because we're seeking our own glory. Gospel glory receives Christ through faith while we live and when we die. And so, rejoice, brothers and sisters. Thirdly, gospel glory seeks the progress and joy of others in Christ. I mean, to live means fruitful labor for Paul on their account. That's really what he's getting at. Paul expands on what he means there. That fruitful labor is for your progress and for, and joy in the faith. Paul is the one who, humanly speaking, has brought them to faith by proclaiming Jesus Christ to them in various situations, and he believed that he himself had been appointed by God for their ongoing progress and joined the faith. Which is why he said something similar to the Colossians. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so the, the, the way of progress is the proclamation of Christ. Helping people to know Him more deeply, more fully, more completely. To understand His work more fully and completely. To applying that work to their particular circumstances so that they understand how the gospel matters in their marriage. How the gospel matters in the workplace. How the gospel matters in their neighborhood. How the gospel matters when you have cancer or when you're unemployed. That's how you work for their progress and joy in the faith. He wanted to help them to grow in their trust, to grow in their obedience, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, to grow in their love, the knowledge, and discernment, as we saw previously through his prayer. But he also wanted them to grow in joy, vibrant worship, What my father-in-law calls the attitude of gratitude, gospel-centered joy. Because we see the greatness of the grace that has been given to us. We see these things. Now, this is what's interesting. Because in Galatians 5, we see that joy is listed among the fruit of the Spirit. It's something the Spirit produces. We see in Romans 15, uh, verse 13, that May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. And so this seems like something that God is intended to do, and yet Paul is saying, I'm working for your joy. Even though it's a fruit of the Spirit, Paul is working for their joy. It's not just a fruit of the Spirit, but it is something that we can help cultivate and others, because we're bringing them to Christ, pointing them to Christ, and praying for them to have the supply of the Spirit they need so that they are full of joy even though their circumstances may pro- promote melancholy. Such advancement or progress in their faith doesn't happen by accident. It requires an investment in people, whether it's prayer or teaching, encouragement, Spending time with folks. But here's an interesting question. Who was appointed for your progress? If you're a member of this church, I'm one of those people that's appointed to your progress. Okay? But there have been other people in your lives. Parents or friends, mentors, They were not accidental, but they were pointed by God and placed into your life for your progress and joy in the gospel, and so that's something that you can be thankful for. So I want you to think about that, so that you can be, so that you can thank God for those people, and rejoice for His gift to you of those who helped you progress and who brought you joy. But then there's the flip side of that question. Whose progress and joy are you appointed to further? Meaning, who are you intended to minister to? For some of you, that answer is very easy. You have children that are young. That's part of your answer. But it's not the totality of your answer. But many of you don't have children who are young. To whom are you called to minister? To whom are you called to invest in for gospel purposes? That's a very important question. And if you don't have an answer for that question, it's time you start praying for an answer to that question. Paul's return for their progress would give them cause to glory in Christ Jesus, as Paul wraps up this section of this passage. His return would give them cause to glory, not in Paul, but in Christ Jesus, because Christ Jesus is the one who has set Paul free. Christ Jesus is the one who has sustained Paul. Christ Jesus is the one who has saved Paul and the Philippians. They would boast or worship in Christ. They would enlarge his reputation amongst themselves and throughout the city of Philippi. So that's part of why I think this is all about glory. It's about seeking your glory in Jesus, whether you live or whether you die. Whether life is good or whether life is hard. And so we're involved in the pursuit of glory. Our lives, or what we think is valuable, is revealed where we think, our lives reveal, rather, where we think glory is found. And, And our lives reveal how we think it is found, how we pursue it. Pursuing the wrong glory means that we end up with nothing. And actually worse than nothing. Disappointed and full of shame. But Jesus offers us freely glory, His glory, a glory of His own making rather than the glory of our own making, a glory that He shares with us. And having this glory, we then begin to share it with other people so that they can rejoice too and they can enlarge Jesus' reputation. Have you begun to receive gospel glory? Have you begun to work fruitfully for the gospel glory of other people? Because that's a natural extension of having received it. Let's pray. Father, forgive me for the confusion of thoughts on my own head. Make them clear to your people. Make them obvious to your people so that they can Rest in the glory that Jesus gives them instead of seeking to get, gain their own reputation like the people of Babel. Help them to receive a great name just as Abram did by grace. And help them to make your great name known to others so that they too can share that gospel glory. Help us to boast about Jesus. Help us to speak of His goodness. May that be our native tongue, so to speak. Free us from the pessimism and the cynicism of our day. And not just our day, but our fallen condition. For Father... The corruption of sin remains, and so it is very easy for us to be pessimistic and s- cynical, just as easy it is for us to run after idols for our for our own glory. So deliver us, set us free so that we are a joyful people, a joyful people making progress in the gospel boasting in Jesus. We cannot do that. But that is not too hard for you. And so we look to you to supply the Spirit so that it happens. In Jesus' name, amen.